Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Indonesia has long been known as one of the most active Facebook and Twitter nations, but more recently, Instagram has become the social media platform of choice for many young Indonesians. Some of this platform's most prolific users are female Islamic activists who are keen to utilize social media as novel tools for proselytization or da'wah. Our guest today, Dr. Anissa Beta from the University of Melbourne, has studied this particular form of digital activism for a long time and recently published some of her findings in an article in the journal Asiascape, Digital Asia. Building on the insights from that research, our episode today explores the contours and aims of contemporary female da'wa activism in Indonesia, asking why female activists choose social media, how they utilize it, and how it helps them perform their religious identity. Before we start, let me introduce my guest today, Dr. Anissa Beta is a lecturer in cultural studies at the University of Melbourne's School of Culture and Communication. Her work focuses on youth, media, and political subjectivity. And as I said before, she recently published an article about female Dawa activists in the journal Asiascape. Anissa, welcome to the program. Thank you. Okay, I suppose uh, we should probably start with a quick explanation um, for our listeners who are not so familiar with Islamic terminology about what da'wah actually is. Um, I've mentioned, as I said, it's uh, basically proselytization, but uh, yes, it contains um, a lot more than that. Can you briefly define for us what da'wah actually means? Yeah, sure. But before I explain what it means, I have to make clear or be clear that I'm not trained in Islamic studies or Islamic history. I'm trained in cultural studies, although I'm a Muslim. And I think my interest in studying young Muslim women came mostly from my personal background. So what, uh, how I'm defining da'wah uh, right now is based on my studies and sort of more everyday definition of what da'wah is. But uh, when we think of da'wah from Arabic language, it literally means to issue a summon or to call, to make a call or to invite someone. And it refers to preaching in Islam generally. So as you define it, Dirk, it's related to, in English, it's proselytization, right? To advocate or promote a belief. And I think for Indonesians, most Indonesians, at least in everyday life, that can mean, it can mean so many things. Um, generally, it means to teach and learn from one another about Islamic teachings. And often people would use a popular hadith, a popular saying from Prophet Muhammad, convey from me even if only one verse uh, that's from Bukhari, uh, that's that has been very popular now that da'wah is popular in Indonesia. And Eva Evnista in her 2018 article, I think, defined it 
defined da'wah very well. She defined it as any religious activity. And that's how it is understood for Indonesians. And other than that, da'wah today is very popular in Indonesia because it simultaneously works with the popularity of the term hijrah. And hijrah itself actually means a number of things. It literally refers to the migration of the prophet with his followers in the year 622 from Mecca to Medina. And in the Quran, you would see hijrah mentioned to refer to the act of distancing oneself from evil and unbelief. But today among Indonesians, da'wah and hijrah work together to refer to this act uh, for most Muslims to be better or shift your identity your religious identity to a better state. So you become more knowledgeable about Islamic teaching. So in a sense, da'wah or proselytization can be seen or understood as a tool to encourage someone's hijrah to become a better Muslim. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thanks for that. What you just said, this explanation already indicates that it can really mean a lot of things. And is um, Indonesia's Islamic community is can also be a lot of things, can be a lot of different people. It's an enormously diverse community. Who in Indonesia is most active in Dakwa? What, 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 is there an archetypical Dakwa activist? Yeah, well, at least the people that I'm studying, the most visible and they are the most popular, in fact, are the middle-class Muslims in Indonesia who live in large cities. So you would think of Jakarta, Yogyakarta, Surabaya, and so on. And of course, as you said, because almost 90% of Indonesians are Muslims, you would see Muslims teaching each other Islamic traditions, right? So you would have pengajian or gatherings. But Dawa activists are not the same as your traditional kiai or your traditional da'i, you know, the scholars who are actually formally trained in Islamic traditions, teachings, and forms of authorities. So they're not the same. So I think if you imagine a figure of the Dawa activists, you would think of someone who is young, who's educated, who's urban, mostly upper middle class or aspire to be at least. And they're usually marketing and technologically savvy. Has this kind of typical image of an activist changed over time or has it emerged perhaps out of different kind of clientele? You mentioned it's not the same as a KI or a religious scholar. Yeah. They have changed and they have shifted. And I think what's important is perhaps a contrast between what happened or the type of Dawa activists that you could see back in the New Order time uh, from the 1960s to the 1990s and contrast them with the Dawa activists that you see today. And under the New Order, I think the Dawa activists that you see uh, playing the field, so to say, are those who are very typically activists, so who see who saw subverting the Suharto's Javanese centrism as very important. And they might be 
trained or they might be informed by pasantren scholars, you know, from the more traditional Muslim Islamic schools. But they're mostly these young people who were more familiar with what you call the Muslim groups or Muslim organizations that are not necessarily related to the same groups as the Pesantren. So they're not necessarily related to Nahdlatul Ulama or related to Muhammadiyah. I think most important example would be the university students who were active in ITB or Bandung Technological Institute in the Salman Mosque. So they were university students who were familiar with some strand of Islamic teaching. You might call them a part of the Tarbiyah movement as well. And they saw the, an, the importance of changing their behavior because they're not trained formally in Islamic teachings or Islamic traditions as the scholars would. They would then sort of gather in the mosque, in the universities, teach each other, make sure that their behavior was different from what has been taught or what has been promoted by the new order corrupt regime, right? And Suzanne Brenner did a very important study for young Muslim women, the group that I'm interested in, in the mid-1990s, where she saw how wearing the veil and learning Islam was an act they were acts that they were considered as purifying Islam or becoming a different type of people than the people that you see under the new order. And one thing that's certainly different now as compared to the new order is the, the, the tools and strategies that activists have at their disposal. So you, in your research, focus a lot on the social media dimension of this. If you compare with the new order, for example, what new opportunities um, have the internet and social media in particular um, come to offer Dakwa activists? Yeah, so social media platforms, well, new media, in fact, have really changed the way Dakwa is done. And I think they have given new opportunities for young people to become Dakwa activists. So the space is no longer limited merely for those who are also active in mosque groups. They it, could be anyone really. So social media in general allows users who want to be popular to gain access to publicity easily, right? I think a lot of people know this, but I think it also give opportunities for those who perhaps were not as familiar as with da'wah, who were not really informed with Islamic teachings in the different ways that they have been taught could really be in contact with specific group of people that they like and learn from that specific group about how to be a good Muslim. And I think new media or social media platforms have given the opportunity for more people to be what you call today micro celebrities or influencers and thus really change the game on how you can teach Islam or how you can perform Dawah activism. And it's providing opportunities for women in particular as well. Um, that's the Definitely. main focus of your research. Yeah. Before we talk about the activists that you actually study, can I just ask briefly whether um, women have been active in that way in the sort of more traditional way, say 20, 30 years ago as well, or is their emergence as activists a phenomenon of the more recent times when 
social media and the internet, you know, offer these new opportunities? That's a very important question. And I think at least from the studies that have been done by scholars, young women have clearly been participating for a long time in different kinds of activities related to religion to therefore sort of give access to people to more education as well as learning about Islam. But I think, unfortunately, the problem is that these type of activities done by young women or the changes that they made were not recognized or often subsumed under a certain group, a larger group that sort of misrecognized or maybe not recognized at all what these young women have done. So young Muslim women have been actively involved in teachings, in promoting, in creating spaces for fellow young women to learn about Islam. And even under the new order at a time where, you know, the authoritarian regime were was very, very strong. Um, in fact, young Muslim women were the ones who did a very long sustained protest against the state. But again, it was not recognized. Um, an important example that I'm referring to here was a decade long protest against the ministerial order called SK Limadua, SK 52, that forbid female students to don the veil in schools. And for almost a decade from 1982 to 1991, young Muslim women um, from uh, high school students to university students actually participated in a series of protests against the order. And they successfully actually convinced the ministry to take away the order and allow young Muslim women to don the veil and have religious head cover used in school. So I think over time, for almost a century now, young Muslim women have been actively involved in different types of activism, dawah activism, but I think the problem is that they haven't been really recognized. Yeah, interesting. And I think in your research, it comes through that some of the activists today are already seeing greater levels of recognition, for example, through very sort of you know, simple statistics like followers on the internet, for example. Maybe, first of all, we can give a broad overview of what kind of women are now the core of these new activists. Are there any common characteristics that they have, social demographic backgrounds, for example? You mentioned earlier it's mostly middle class from um, larger cities. What else can you tell us about the women who are now sort of at the forefront of this new Dawah activism? The women who are now at the forefront of Dawah activism have been the same group of people, demographically, you can say, from the ones that you saw in the 1990s. So these are the upper middle class Muslim women. They are young, they're urban, they're, uh, most of them are highly educated or at least university educated. Well, at least that's, they are the ones that are most visible online. What might be a bit different, though, is that I think these women are more creative. So a very important group that I'm studying uh, is Hijabers community. And this community was started by a group of 
Muslim fashion designer. So they actually started as designers and then they decided to work together and form this community where young women can teach and learn from each other about Islam. Yeah, conceptually, you describe them as part of a, what you describe as a Muslima intimate public in your research. Can you explain this idea to us? What is the intimate public generally and more specifically in regards to the female Muslims you're studying in Indonesia? An intimate public can be understood as that site or that space that is different from public sphere and also different from intimate sphere. So most famously, Jürgen Habermas defined public sphere as, as this space where people have rational discussion involving issues that they think needed to be debated, needed to be resolved as a public or as a group of people in the same space. And in opposition, there's this intimate sphere where family life happens, right? Usually at home. So the intimate public is a public form by a sense of togetherness among strangers but mostly based on personal acts and personal values. So that involves emotion. It seems non-political, and I think it's important that we underline that, that it seems non-political, although it is political. And it looks into mostly the sufferings or troubling facts about public life, about social life, that are discussed and articulated, though, as a personal experience. I think I've seen that. Uh, residents in Indonesia. And that's why I came up with this term, Muslimah, intimate public, to think about how the da'wah activists that we've been discussing focus into the feelings, uh, focus into the emotions of the, their followers and also the founders and the people, all of the people involved in these groups to articulate what they think about the public. So feelings as a way to express their concerns about the public or social issues. How does social media help them to articulate these feelings and these emotions? Like, Could you imagine the emergence of this kind of Muslim intimate public without the internet and social media, or are these two intrinsically linked? I think social media played a key role here because if we think about magazines or newspapers that used to be the medium of which the activists promote or distribute their ideologies or concerns about issues. Not many people could write back, right, or could speak back to one another. So social media uh, has become a very important tool here because it personalizes discussions and debates. Uh, the tool, the phone that is in your hand is a way for you to reach out to more people, to strangers, and to really have the medium to hear one another and to relate to one another and or even to simply just react to whatever is happening in the public and mm, perhaps give comments or perhaps um, create a new post which other people could respond to. Okay, let's talk about some of the actual activists and the accounts that they're using. It's obviously difficult in a podcast to talk about such a visual medium such as Instagram, but uh, maybe you can describe some of the um, accounts that you've been looking at. You mentioned a group, the Hijabas. 
um, before. Hijabers community? Yeah, Hijabers community, yeah. So I think um, there were a few of these that you looked at quite specifically in your research, compared them, um, what they're focusing on, how they set up their accounts and how they're using social media for their activism. So can you try to give us a sense of what these accounts look like and why they're so popular? Sure. I looked into four of the largest groups of uh, young Muslim women. They are Ukhti Sali, Dunia Jilbab, Hijabers Community, and Puduli Jilbab. I also looked into their founders' accounts. Uh, these are very popular influencers. Uh, Dian Palangi, who's a Muslim fashion designer and the founder of Hijabers Community, along with Kaida Suraya, uh, who's also the founder of Hijabers Community and the daughter of Aajim, who's a very famous preacher in Indonesia, as well as Ayuma Malula. She's uh, the founder of Ukhti Sali. So these are very diverse groups. They're not at all the same in the way they teach Islam or in the way they teach the teachings to their followers. But one key way that they express Islamic teaching is that softness is important. So even though we call them da'wah activists, they're not the activists you would conventionally imagine, who would use angry visuals, right? Or very, very strong statements about social or political problems or concerns. So softness is very important to these groups and to some extent, girlishness, being girly, being feminine are very important characteristics in their account. So femininity and dreams of conventional feminine lives, you know, getting married, having children, having a good life uh, with your family and being a good Muslim at the same time are really emphasized. They do differ a little bit in the ways in which they understand whether or not you should date, how long should your veil be, how you should dress, whether or not you could wear pants as a Muslim woman or you should wear dresses all the time and so forth. But even though they're very different, I think there's an interesting goal uh, in mind that they all of them agree to, and that is they prefer not to express their political concerns or their concerns about social life the same way you would imagine the, their male counterparts would, or in the same way you would imagine activists express their contention against the state or uh, in relation to issues in uh, the public. Mm -hmm. In a sense, they all pursue the same kind of goal, but they also compete with one another. They compete for followers. And is that why you describe the existence of these activists in the context of a market logic, because they compete with one another? Or can you explain the link between this public piety, this religious activism, and on the one hand, and market logic on the other hand, yeah, a key part of my argument is that market logics or uh, understanding about how important marketing is and the market, the group of people that they could target is not an afterthought, right, of these Dawa activists. Rather, this is the basis of their activism. So very literally, these groups 
are also involved in different forms of businesses. So they're involved in event organizing, publishing, sponsorship, fashion businesses, advertorials, and so on. So these businesses are important sources for them to sustain their dawa activities. But perhaps more generally as well, market logics are involved here in the ways in which they understand the importance of branding. So they're very consistent in how they visualize how a good Muslim woman should be, in the way they visualize their groups. So they would use the same color, they would use the same font, they would consistently use the same wording or vocabulary. So they would not suddenly change the way they express their concerns or the way they teach young Muslim women to become good Muslim women. And this consistency, I think, is really important in how they attract followers because they act really like almost in corporations in how they understand consistency, colors, vocabulary could attract uh, the attentions of their users. And these are important because in social media, you compete for attention, as you said, Dirk. So market logics really have played a key role in their activism. Now, if it goes beyond just merely competing with another, but if there are actually real business enterprise behind it, as you say, isn't it perhaps a bit, I don't know, you said earlier on that these are not your conventional that way activists, but is it perhaps a bit of a stretch to actually even describe them as activists? How do they position themselves in this kind of terminology? I don't know, do they describe themselves as activists or are they actually business people using religion to make money? That's a very important question. And no, they don't describe themselves as activists. I think most people who are involved in activism would also rarely call themselves as activists, right? But this is why I think it's it was important for me to write this article, to map out and to trace back and forth how activism and dawah activism could be defined. So It's very troubling indeed, and I understand that, that how is it that activists use businesses? Perhaps they're not activists at all. But I think they are in the way that they're consistently advocating for change and consistently uh, do the work to create that change that they want in the society, which I think is the basic definition of activism. But Again, I found it very important to write this article because I want to give qualifiers as to how they do their activism. And more importantly, in Islamic tradition, business or commercial interests are not seen as defiant to the teachings. In fact, um, the important works of Daromir Rudniki and James Hostry have clearly uh, laid out the fact that for most Muslims, the idea of trade or the idea of business have been uh, interpreted as foundational in the religious practice, perhaps because, of course, the story of the Prophet Muhammad and his wife both were very active in commerce. So there haven't been any disregard or sort of negative uh, perspective about what business could mean for religious activities. So I think 
yes, I agree with you. It could be a stretch to understand them as activists, but I think it's also important to understand the specificities that Islam and Islamic teachings give for Muslims to think about how activism can be done. Okay, if we accept that business interests can be an acceptable part of this activism, then how about political interests? Because uh, activism, I think, traditionally understood has very clear political goals, right? And you said earlier on that uh, many of these activists sort of pretend not to be political, but are in fact political. And of course, Islam in Indonesia is a significant political force. So where do these women position themselves when it comes to actual religious questions that affect politics? So for example, the most recent controversies around AHOG or some legislation, maybe the government's hardline approach towards the Islamist opposition, with all these kinds of questions being debated very widely in Indonesia, where do the activists that you study stand in regards to this? So it's very important, as you said, that they're not clearly political. And this is perhaps why they've been ignored or not recognized by most political analysts or mainstream media discussion about politics, right? So this being not political as clearly or as literally, I think is an important part of their character or the characteristics of these groups. But they were involved in protests. They were involved in actively promoting a certain political candidates that they were against or they're for. So I think what is important here is to realize how the work that they've done, that is sharing Islamic teachings, organizing meetups and gatherings, inviting preachers, inviting inspirational figures to their meetings, are sustained and long-term work that shape their followers' way of thinking about how the public or how the society should be run. And they're not activating or they're not mobilizing their followers all the time. They're not always having their followers go to protests every year. In fact, I think for the longest time, I thought before I started my research or before I went to my field to do my field work, I thought they were not political at all. But when I actually participate in their meetings and and join their gatherings, I saw the hard work that they did to make sure that their followers were clear about what they want to do and were clear about how the state, how the society and how the public should be run. And therefore, when the time is right, as you said, um, into 2016, 2017, uh, when the AHOK controversy happened, or at the time when a presidential election happened last year in 2019 in Indonesia, they could mobilize their followers. They could convince them that certain political lineage is preferred than the other. So there are now a lot of these activists, as you said, you've only looked at a sort of small selection of them, but it's a, it's a growing market. It's, um, it's clearly something that can attract lots of followers. And yet when you described the sort of typical activists at the beginning, it seems to be um, rather sort of confined to certain segments of, you know, middle-class, well-educated um, activists. 
how do you see this unfolding into the future? Is there potential for um, women from other kind of backgrounds to break into this? Will this go spread to more rural communities? Are there perhaps different concerns for different types of the female Muslim community? How do you see this go forward? I think it's really centered around the most privileged young people in Indonesia. So I think it will still be focused, this Dawa activism, the key players will still be the middle class, the urban, the educated, the technologically literate young people. But I think what we will be seeing in, in the future, and I think it has happened today, is that they created a sense of aspiration for young people who perhaps are less privileged, who are perhaps less educated or lived in rural areas. And these are, I think, the important future that we need to look into, how this aspiration of becoming a good Muslim who's pious, who are very successful, have good businesses, active in meetings and gatherings, and, you know, appear very beautiful, appear very soft, and at the same time, very influential, have become a key and definitive characteristic of the ideal young Muslim women and even Muslim youth in Indonesia. And to a certain extent, I think the government have sort of started to be aware that this could be used or this could be understood as the ideal imagined, well, perhaps real to a certain degree, Muslim youth. Okay, thank you very much for these insights, Anissa. That was Anissa Beta from the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne, speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 17th of December for the very last episode of 2020. And what a year it's been. I hope that you will join us again um, the next year when we resume. You can, of course, find the entire archive of all previous episodes of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and until next time. Thank you.